those who are true apostles, and I might add true leaders and teachers in the church in general, uh, true apostles are characterized by their lowly humility and not their grandiose style. If you like, uh, true leaders, true teachers are known by their cross-shaped lives. And third, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 4 verses 14 through 21, Paul takes the moment to remind his readers that in fact he teaches with all of the authority of someone sent by God, someone appointed by God himself. So first of all, uh, they were to think of Paul and Peter and Apollos as servants and stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, I've put the NET translation up there because it's lovely and compact. Um, Literally, one should think about us this way, wrote Paul, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now we'll come to servants and stewards, but the elephant in the room right now is you're all wanting to know what the mysteries of God that were revealed, aren't you? Is that true? Well, some of you are saying that. Well, you know what? Uh, there's been more than a little ink spilled on this one. Um, but actually the most obvious answer, I think, is the right answer. And it really is fairly easy. You see, in Christ, we have God's ultimate plan of salvation revealed. God's ultimate salvation plan, that was hidden right throughout the Old Testament, is now clearly revealed in the person and work in Jesus. So what are the mysteries that Paul is talking about? Well, the mystery here is simply the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So to come back to it, how are the Corinthians to regard Paul and the others? Well, uh, Paul, though perhaps it's not obvious, is using a metaphor that would have been very familiar to his Corinthian leaders. And it's the metaphor of a household. And, uh, of course, we're, we're familiar with the idea of Paul being a servant of Christ. Um, however, there's a little bit of a twist here that's not quite so obvious in English. You see, many times when we read servant, the word in the original Greek could just as well be translated as slave. However, Paul here uses a less common word. Uh, It was a word that was often used of the attendance of kings and magistrates. It was a person who was uh, an attendant of someone in high office. And the word translated as steward is the same word that was used of the senior member of a household staff, if you like. The head servant, as it were. And this is the person who would have been entrusted by the head of the household to run things on a day-to-day basis. At verse 2, Paul's point's really simple. The measure of a steward, the measure of such a servant, is their faithfulness to their master. And that's it. Faithfulness was everything. Uh, And he goes further, he reminds them that in that situation only the head of the household was in a position to judge them. A fellow servant who judged them would have been seriously out of line. 
And Paul extended that understanding to his office under Jesus. He wrote, in fact, that he didn't even judge himself. He reminded his readers, didn't he, that even his own conscience was at best an imperfect judge, an imperfect yardstick of his behaviour. Rather, Paul wrote that he lived in the sure knowledge that in God's good time, everyone is going to receive God's perfect judgment. And we should live our lives right now in the light of that ultimate judgment to come. Uh, Brothers and sisters, when we look around us, our world is chock full of celebrity speakers and authors. Nowhere is that more true than in the Christian world. And I want to say I think far more so than ever in history before us because it is just so easy to self-promote and self-publish. Paul's words here are a reminder that as we look at all of these people, that it's their faithfulness that actually counts in God's eyes. Their faithfulness to his word lived out in their lives, if you like. Now, the obvious question, is there a place for us to judge those whom God has placed over us? Or can Roger and David and I and others stand up here and and presume to preach and teach and then ignore anything that any of you might say to us afterward because we're adopting Paul's words as our own. Don't judge us. Can we do that? Well, the answer is both yes and no. Uh, Insofar as uh, those who lead, preach and teach faithfully standing on the words of the apostles, on God's word, then indeed we do stand with Paul, but not our own authority. But if we get to that point where we decide that performance is more important than content, uh, when we decide that we're going to speak because we want to gain a fan base, you know, that group of people is going to pay for the books that we're writing and subscribe to our podcast. When we get to that point, then our motives betray themselves in our behaviour, as indeed might other motives come out in other behaviours. And I want to say at that point, any leader should be taken to task. For those of us who sit at the feet of teachers and preachers, it's good to remember, faithfulness is God's yardstick. It's not our eloquence, it's not our perceived wisdom, uh, it's not our perceived success. You know, He's a great one, he's in a big church. They're a great one, they speak at the Katoomba Convention. Faithfulness, God says, is what counts. And you know, at that point, we have to be so careful, don't we? So careful. You see, our judgment is too often sinful. Uh, Paul wrote about this to his good friend and partner, Timothy. 
He could have written this letter to us, couldn't he? A time will come when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, following their own desires, they'll accumulate teachers for themselves because they've got this insatiable curiosity to hear new things and they will turn away from the truth. Turn away from hearing the truth. But on the other hand, they'll turn aside to myths. That's 2 Timothy 4 verse 3 in case you're wondering where I got that from. See, brothers and sisters, it's really easy to find somebody who will scratch our itchy ears. It's far harder, it's far harder to find someone who's brave enough to tell us what God's word says. It's very easy to listen avidly to someone who says what we want to hear. But when we're challenged, oh, it's equally easy to condemn a teacher when in fact we ought to take things up with the God upon whose word they're standing. I pray we won't fall into that trap and so turn aside, uh, turn aside from the truth and follow myths. Uh, first of all, the Corinthians were to think of Paul and the others as servants and stewards. And second, they were to see them as men who lived the lives of true followers of Jesus. Now, again, before we get there, um, there's this interesting phrase, do not go beyond what is written. What does that mean? How are the Corinthians supposed to learn this from Paul and Apollos. Now I suppose it's pretty obvious we look at it and go, yeah, well the Corinthians knew what it was about. But what do we do with it? Was it some sort of axiom that was doing the rounds of Corinth in the time? And even if it was, what did it mean? Um, is it simply an injunction never to go beyond scripture? We, we could read it that way. In fact, uh, the expression what is written could even be translated as what is scripture. That same word's translated that way elsewhere, but here it normally isn't. Now, I might, must say, um, it would be fun to explore this. And I did actually chase a few, a bit of reading down, but I gave up because while it was fun, it wasn't getting me anywhere. The bottom line is, even though this is a, a question that's been asked by Christian commentators for the last couple of thousand years, in the end, it doesn't actually matter. And you might go, oh, doesn't matter. Well, let me explain it this way. Uh, the Corinthians were proud. Literally, they were proud. Now, I can't do this. I haven't got a big enough chest. I need somebody who's a big bloke to stand up here. Um, they were proud, literally puffed up. The image is one of a man who sticks his chest out to look bigger and tougher than those around him. It's the kind of stuff you see on TV and, you know, on the news when uh, in the sports section of the news you flip to the weigh-in for a boxing match or perhaps a couple of UFC fighters are weighing in and uh, all this posturing and posing is going on. Seems to be the main aim, actually. The Corinthians, or at least an influential group amongst them, uh, they used their adherence to one speaker as against another because that was their way of making themselves look great and what Paul was doing here is simply saying learn from me 
not to puff yourselves up by chasing after one great name at the expense of another. Let me try and explain it another way. Uh, now, when I was in high school, and that's a while ago now, back in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the school I went to, nobody ever admitted they were a Panthers fan. Isn't that shock horror? Nobody ever admitted they were a Panthers fan. Why not? Because the Panthers were the losers. They consistently held the wooden spoon. For year after year after year, they were last on the competition ladder. And if you followed the Panthers, then your classmates just poured it on. And nobody wanted that. We wanted to be winners. And so we followed the great teams like Souths and Balmain. Because that made us look good in turn. Now be pleased to know that I've repented of my sin, at least when it comes to the Panthers. But you can see my point. You see, by, by trying to back a winner, the Corinthians sought to make themselves look good in the eyes of those around them. I'm a, I'm a fan of Apollos. Oh no, I'm a fan of Peter. He's much better. You can see how it goes. And Paul says, no, you don't do that because we're just servants and stewards. And by verse 7, Paul starts to ramp it up. Uh, if their sin was to elevate themselves at the expense of others, then uh, verse 7, th this series of rhetorical questions just puts a really big pin in their balloon. Who do you think you are? What makes you think you're special? What makes you think you're special before God when God actually gave you everything you have? So when we're at verse 8, I think the, uh, the Corinthians thought that they'd made it. And, of course, as the letter unfolds, we're going to see more and more evidence of that. You know, they were so spiritual that they would tolerate gross sexual sin in their midst and call it Christian love. Uh, some of them were so gifted, they spoke in tongues and so considered themselves to be spiritually mature. Uh, some of them thought of themselves as so spiritual they could just brazenly eat the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and so just trampled all over the consciences of other brothers and sisters. The tone is scathing, isn't it? It really is. But it doesn't even end there because verse 9 um, uh, borrows another image that was familiar to the Corinthians. Uh, it, it's this idea of an adoring population in, in, a, um, uh, in a, an amphitheatre watching a conquering hero's parade. Uh, the way a, a triumph would work is that they would have floats of all the different things, floats filled with the spoils and slaves dressed as people, all sorts of stuff, and they would just have float after float after float, and right at the very end would come the, the leader or the ruler of the group that had been 
conquered. Last in the parade would be the hero themselves. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you're in the stands. You're eating pies and drinking beer. Having a great time. Actually, we're down there. We're down in the sand and the, the dirt and the dust. We're the ones at the end of the parade. Our lives are already forfeit. See the comparisons. For the, the, the apostles were fools for Christ. The Corinthians were wise. The apostles were weak. The Corinthians were strong. The Corinthians were honoured. The apostles dishonoured. And if that's not enough, in verses 11 through 13, Paul doubles down. Listen to what he says. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this very moment. The Corinthians saw Paul as a loser. They saw him as a loser. They didn't want to be seen as losers themselves. So they wouldn't follow him. They wanted to look good. They wanted to be triumphant. But Jesus um, had something to say about that, didn't he? And I think Paul, in a sense, is harking back to what he said to his followers in Luke 14, verse 27. Uh, We read that Jesus said, Whoever does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, those of us who want to truly follow Jesus are going to end up like him in every way. Um, I don't know how you felt in your heart as you listened to Isaiah 53. But isn't that a sobering passage? Jesus' way was the way of sacrifice. It was the way of humility to the point of being despised. Now you might say, am I saying that unless we and our leaders are suffering that we aren't true followers of Jesus? Well, no, I'm not saying that. I mean, life has its seasons, as does ministry. But I am saying that the life of a true follower of Jesus is neither to be a celebrity or to pursue those who are celebrities. The life of a true follower of Jesus is a cross-shaped life. And like Paul, um, while we remain sure of the life to come, we are equally still in the midst of the same world that tortured and crucified our Saviour. Our trouble is that too often we want to be in the stands with the Corinthians. We don't like being down in the parade 
with those condemned. That's not a particularly trust, a particularly attractive option, is it? So first of all, the Corinthians were to think of Paul and the others as servants and stewards. Secondly, they were to see them as men who lived lives of um, true followers of Jesus. And third, Paul reminded them of his deep love for them. And I must say, the awesome authority of his God-given role. Um, Paul switches up his metaphors again here, and this time he's switching to a a metaphor of family. Uh, He is their father, and the Corinthians are his dear children. Before we get sidetracked by it, I just want to say that Paul uh, was more than aware of Jesus' words in Matthew 23, where Jesus said to his followers, uh, Call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. It's in Matthew 23. But I think what we need to understand here is Paul is using the word as a metaphor in a number of ways. First of all, as a father, he has that same deep concern for the Corinthians. He was, in fact, the one who planted this church. You can read about that back in Acts 18. And his concern for them went way beyond being a guardian. Um, it's a funny expression, isn't it? But the the guardian was the pedagogue. He was the person, the household slave, who typically would take the children to and from school and look after them in other ways. So this is about family. And, and second is a, uh, not this slave who had a particular role. Um, uh, second, as with any good father, he not only cared deeply for them, he knew that at times tough love was needed. And so he warned them and he corrected them. He admonished them. He urged them to imitate him as children imitate their parents. And he wrote to them to let them know that Timothy was on his way. What was Timothy going to do? He was going to remind them of how it was that Paul lived and how in turn they should live. Uh, By the way, if we're ever tempted to think that Paul was being a little arrogant in urging his followers to to imitate him, uh, read ahead to chapter 11, verse 1, where he makes a similar statement. Paul urged the Corinthians to follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. Paul wraps up this section of the letter by reminding the Corinthians that talk is cheap. Rhetoric and showmanship and even a big fan club don't actually prove anything, don't demonstrate anything. Uh, When it comes to the kingdom of God, the words of those who preach bear the power of the one who, uh, to whom we owe allegiance. So brothers and sisters, if we, as we wrap up today, I'd hope none of us are ever as presumptuous as that person I spoke of back as I began, who in their arrogance and pride uh, had decided they were free to judge the Apostle Paul and find him wanting and so ignore him. I hope and did I pray that none of us would ever do that.
uh, I hope and pray that none of us fall into the trap of running after the great ones who adorn the bookstores and the websites and the podcasts of our Christian world. And so fail to end up following Jesus because actually our motive in doing that is to be part of the in crowd and to lift ourselves up. When actually we ought to live as Jesus would have us live. Humbly, serving, returning blessing for cursing, enduring persecution and answering with kindness those who slander us. Like Corinth, we too ought to think of Paul as a faithful servant of God, an apostle. And we could spend a lot of time talking about what an apostle is, but an apostle is literally one who is sent. And in Paul's case, one sent by the Lord Jesus himself, someone whose words, the words that we have in the pages of our Bibles, are the very words of God himself. Amen.